Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. And today's scripture is in is from the book of Mark chapter 6 from verse 22 to verse 26. I'm sorry, chapter 8. Um, Mark 8, 22 to 26. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and laid him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He answered, um, he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his, his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Amen. Thank you, Lydia. We're going to go ahead and dismiss our kids now. So if you're elementary age, you can scoot out the back. Ask your parents what they heard in the sermon later. All right, well, if this is your first time with us, we are in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's one of four accounts of Jesus' life. And we've been walking through this book for some weeks together. And our goal has been to get to know Jesus better and to understand what it means for us to follow Jesus together and what we're inviting other people into. Uh, it's interesting, today I was talking with, uh, with, with a couple of, of fathers uh, in our church family uh, that have had babies recently, and I was saying, hey, how's it going? How's, how's home life? And I already knew the answer, because when you have a baby, you don't get a lot of sleep, right? And so that was the prevailing answer. It's great, and boy, am I tired. And, you know, I was thinking about this, nothing highlights our selfishness more than parenthood. Uh, Because all of a sudden, you are responsible for this other person, and everything that they need is dependent on you. I realized when my firstborn, uh, Jude, was born, and I was holding him, and I was, I loved him so much. It was, he was this little miracle, and I still love him. He's sitting right there. Uh, And I was holding him, and I was, and all of my love was directed in, in his direction, And the only thing he could do to show his appreciation was fill his diaper. (laughs) And in that moment, I realized how selfish I was because I could say all these things. I could show him all these things about how much I loved him. And he couldn't do anything to give love back. In fact, he couldn't really even see me because when babies are first born, they can't see very far. And I thought, wow, how selfish uh, I am, how selfish we can be in our own love. Uh, Jessica and I, we have four of our own kids, and our youngest son, Trey, just turned 10. And not only do we have four of our own kids, but we've been foster parents to about seven children uh, over the last number of years. So there's always been something to do in my house. Um, if it's not feeding, changing diapers, it's putting together Legos. I am, I'm a master at Legos now. Uh, I thought I was good when I was a kid, but I'm really good now. Uh, I'm re- also really good at taking off and putting on training wheels on bikes. Uh, I've got I have a lot of experience with that. You know, and my son Trey turned 10, and he was getting 10-year-old 
10-year-old boy stuff that I've been playing with for years with my other boys. And he was asking me the other day, hey, would you play Legos? Would you throw the football? Would you do these things? And honestly, I was, I'm starting to feel a little old and a little tired. <laughs> uh, and inside of me, I was like, yes, I will. But, but uh, you know, I was just kind of wrestling with it a little bit. One of my son's favorite things to do, though, my youngest son, is to look at pictures. And so I told him, for your birthday, we will look at all the pictures that you want. Because uh, he asks for it all the time. And so just the other day, we were opening up, looking through a bunch of pictures from back in the day. And it's amazing how when you start to remember, your life begins to come into a little bit more perspective. You, you kind of zoom out from your personal moment. And you think about all the things you've experienced, all the things that God has done. Especially when you're looking at pictures of your kids and how much they've grown. And one of the things I was thinking about with my son, Trey, uh, is how selfish I am. He, he was sitting there. He was asking me to do these things, and there was this inner grumbling uh, in my spirit. And as we began to look at pictures, there were some things that I had forgotten about my son. And some of you know his story. Um, we adopted him when he was two years old. He was born with a major uh, heart issue. And at the age of four, he had an open heart surgery when we were still living in Spokane. And he almost didn't live. In fact, at one point, the doctors, because of complications from the surgery, said, we don't know if he's going to make it tomorrow. And as we were looking at the pictures, this one picture came up. Uh, this is Trey with a wall of medical gear hooked up to him uh, in the hospital, not conscious, fighting for his life. And I, I saw this picture yesterday, and it was a moment of clarity for me, a moment of perspective. My goodness, I love this boy. I'm so thankful he's alive. And I will play as many Legos and throw as many footballs as you want because you are a gift. But it isn't it interesting how we can quickly forget, quickly lose perspective. We, we go through the motions uh, daily, weekly, and we relationally sometimes forget the, the million little miracles that have got us to the moment that we're in today. Um, as we've been reading Mark's gospel together, many of us have heard it all before. We, or at least we think we have. We think we know who Jesus is. We, we're familiar with some of the stories, even if we didn't grow up in the church there in our culture. But there's a danger. There's a danger in our familiarity with Christ. There's a danger in going through the motions of our faith that sometimes we lose perspective and that affects our faith. And sometimes it affects the very relationship that Jesus died to give us with our Father. So this morning as we continue our walk through Mark's gospel, um, we're going to look at chapter 8. And there's three scenes that are linked together in Mark chapter 8 that underscore an important theme in Mark's gospel. And this theme is that you can see with your eyes... And yet you can still be completely blind, completely blind. And so our passage this morning is Mark chapter 8, verses 21 through 26. The theme is spiritual blindness, spiritual blindness. In the passage that Lydia just read, we see yet another healing miracle. This is one that we can just, again, nod and move our head to, but let's be honest, at this point, 
in the story, we get it, don't we? Jesus can do miraculous things. He's multiplied food. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. He's walked on water twice. (laughs) Actually, once and called the water twice the other time. But he's done these things before, right? And so in the story that Lydia just read, it's easy just to go, okay, we get it. Jesus healed a blind man. But this one's a bit different. This one's a bit different. If you, if you listen to what Lydia was reading in verses 22 through 26, Jesus prays for this man who is blind, but at first his sight isn't restored. I remember reading this and going, wait a second. Like even Jesus doesn't have his prayers answered? What's going on here? The, the man says that he can kind of see, but not fully yet. He, he sees people, but he said they look like trees walking around. So Jesus prays again. And this time the man's sight is fully restored. This miracle is kind of interesting because it's, it's plopped down here in, towards the end of chapter 8, but there's things going on around it. This comes at the end of a, of a series of what has kind of common interactions in Jesus' ministry to this point. One, Jesus has been ministering to thousands of people. And he's been preaching the gospel. and People have been showing up to see his healings, to hear his teachings. So we see Jesus interacting with the crowd. And then we also see Jesus uh, interacting with religious leaders who are not sure about him. Uh, that's putting it mildly. They don't like him at all. And then we see Jesus interact with his disciples, those guys that are traveling with him, that are partnering with him in ministry. So it comes after these interactions, this story of the blind man being healed, to serve as a type of real-world exclamation point. This this is a, a moment that actually helps us understand the moments before it even better. And the moments before it have to do with spiritual blindness. So even though what Lydia read is the ending story in our text this morning, I wanted to start with it. And like so many movies, right, that start with the beginning, or start with the ending, I should say, and then go back to the beginning. That's what we're going to do this morning. Like those those movies that say, one day earlier, that's what we're going to do, okay? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 8, verse 1, the very beginning of chapter 8. We're going to read this together. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Now again, just like the healing, this is going to sound very familiar. So stay locked in. Pay attention to what's going on because it's important. It's on purpose. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 says this. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they said. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given them thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. It sounds like my house. (laughs) About 4,000 were present. 
After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Okay, so this sounds familiar, right? If it sounds familiar, it's because we've heard this before. In chapter 6, Jesus has done the exact same thing. Chapter 6, it says 5,000 men were present. In this one, it says 4,000 men were present. And we can gather, because they're only counting the men, that there was probably three times that amount of people. So it's like a small stadium arena full of folks. So we've heard this before. What's, why is it happening again? What's significant about this particular story? Well, one thing we see that's, that's also similar is that in both places, Jesus looked on the crowds with compassion. The, the, the root of the word compassion means to suffer with. Like Jesus understood what it meant to be very hungry. So Jesus had compassion on these folks. And you could tell in the way he was unpacking, he was thinking about, man, some of these folks have to travel a long ways. And you know what happens when you haven't had food and you have to travel? Man, they might not even make it. So Jesus cared about the people that were there. The thing that's, one thing that's different about this story and the previous story is in the first feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was primarily among his own people, the Jewish people. This story takes place among primarily Gentile people. And what we've seen is we've seen this unpacking of the gospel message that it starts with the Jews, but then it is for all people everywhere. So Jesus is demonstrating this. This is a tangible demonstration of the gospel of Jesus being for all people. This is another thing about this story that I think is so true is that people can't digest spiritual truth if there are physical barriers. People can't digest spiritual truth if there are physical barriers. So if you're going to walk up to a, a, a homeless person on the street who hasn't eaten in three days and you're saying, I, need to, I want to tell you something about Jesus, they just can't hear it because the grumbling in their stomach is too much. And Jesus understood that. People can't digest spiritual truth if there are physical barriers. You know, the closest thing that I've ever experienced to something like this in a miracle was two years ago at the beginning of COVID. Uh, our church was not meeting in person. Everything was online. We were all to stay at home, if you remember. And uh, I got a phone call from a, a, a pretty big uh, food distribution organization. I'm not going to name them because uh, they've they dropped the ball on this particular phone call. But they called me and they said, hey, we're looking for neighborhoods to distribute food in because so many people aren't working and they're losing their, their income. And would your church be open to hosting a, a distribution? I said, absolutely. And so we mobilized our volunteers. We talked about their leadership team. And we said, okay, on Tuesday from 2 to 6 p.m., we're going to have a, a drive-through. We're going to have enough food to feed 150 uh, families. So cars would come through. And so we were really excited about this. And this particular organization was going to provide the food. We provided the manpower. Awesome. The night before, after we promoted this to our neighborhoods through all the channels that we have in our, in our city, I mean, literally the mayor is, was promoting this, I get a phone call that night at about 6 p.m. the night before. Sorry, we don't, we don't have any food for you tomorrow. And I was so upset because I thought, we have told all of these families and what are we going to do tomorrow when they start driving through our church building? Not only is, is it terrible for them, but it's also going to look really bad for us because they don't care about who's giving the food or who was supposed to provide the food, but who said they were going to give it. 
it's going to look really bad. So I sent an email to our leadership team, and I said, we're not going to be able to do it. We don't have any food. We have the people, we have the facilities, but no food. And immediately, our leadership team stepped up. Everybody started sending emails and making phone calls. And within an hour, we had somebody go, okay, there's another food distribution happening the night, uh, tonight. They said they can give us bread to distribute tomorrow. Okay, I'm like, that's, all right, that's something. Then I had somebody else uh, call me and say, hey, we have all these frozen turkeys that we can give away that are down in Kent. We just need to get them up there on Tuesday. Okay, we'll give, give them out frozen turkeys. We have this, another person call and say, hey, we don't have the food now, but we can show up right before your feeding event is supposed to happen, and we can bring some food. And I had no idea how much food, but I was like, we'll take it. Within that evening, just within a couple hours, we're like, okay, we're going to have something. And so we set up, not knowing how many people are come through. It was our first week, not knowing how much food we're going to have to distribute. And that one phone call that said, hey, we'll bring it right before, they show up with enough food to feed 100 families. So within hours of it, all feeling like it's going to fall apart, we were able to feed 150 families. And I remember that evening going, phew, we did it. That's it. It was a one-time thing. Let's not do this again. Because <laughs> we, we can't do this every week. Like We can't just be making phone calls hoping food shows up. Well, the next week, beginning of the week, I get a phone call. Hey, I know you're only going to do it that one time, but we actually this week have this amount of food. We take it. And then I had a Vietnam up the street call and say, hey, we heard what you guys did. We want to give you food. And within, without even trying, we were able to feed another 150 families the next Tuesday. I could go on and on and on again. But the short story is, for three months, we distributed food in our neighborhood. Three months. Thousands of families that came through. God provided in, in miraculous ways. The school system, uh, a congressman. <laughs> I mean, I could tell story after story. Many of you were part of that when we were, when we were doing this. God cares about our physical well-being. We can't hear spiritual truth when there's a physical need. So like Jesus, we want to be a people that are led by compassion. So two, two things about this miracle that are a little bit interesting, this feeding of the 4,000. One is the disciples' initial response to Jesus. They say this, Jesus says, if I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciple answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? <laughs> did you forget what I did before? <laughs> that's like, that's like when, when your mom takes you to the park and you're like, did you happen to bring any snack? Of course she did. She's a mom. She brought a snack for you, right? <laughs> The disciples' response was as if they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know what he had done before. Instead of saying, hey, Jesus, are you going to do that thing again? <laughs> this should be great. They go, there's no grocery stores around here. What are we going to do? Isn't that interesting? The, the other response, and Jesus does his thing, right? The other response I thought that was, was interesting is that when Jesus does this, Nobody acts amazed. His disciples don't go, oh my goodness, this is, I can't believe you're doing this again. This is fantastic. Like there's no record of that. Now maybe the crowd didn't know. We'll give them that. Maybe they just thought that Jesus' and his disciples always had food to feed thousands of people. 
But the disciples, I don't know what they're thinking at this point. So this story of feeding these thousands of people, it sets up two interactions that that lead into the healing of the blind man. The first interaction right after this is an interaction that Jesus has with some religious leaders. Whenever you see the term Pharisees, that's who they are. These religious leaders. Check out verse 11 through 13. Right after this, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Now, at first reading, you're like, why doesn't he just give them a sign? Why didn't he just do something? But, but let's think about this for a minute. Perspective matters, right? What has Jesus been doing up to this point if not giving signs? Feeding people, healing people, casting out demons. And so the, the Pharisees, they wanted a sign, but they wanted a sign in their way. And, and, and they didn't want a sign uh, because they wanted to further their faith. They wanted a sign because they were skeptical. They want to sign out of their skepticism. Most um, scholars, commentators that talk about this, they think that the sign that the Pharisees wanted was some sort of kind of supernatural sign from heaven, some sort of vision or kind of supernatural feeling that they might get. Something that you might get if you meditate long enough or if if you repeat the same words like some kind of pagan mantra. Something like that. That's what they wanted. You know, the truth is, if God were to reveal himself in some sort of spectacle like that, it it virtually takes away free choice. If God in all of his glory were to plop down right in the midst of us, we would have to respond in worship. We, We would be compelled to by his overwhelming power and majesty. Oh, we, we feel little signs and glimpses of this. You, you know what this is like, this idea of worship, right? That you just, you just can't help it. When you see that sunset, when you're out in creation and there's this, you see the ocean lay before you or the mountain, you just go, oh, you have no choice but to respond in that way. And so God doesn't do that because he wants relationship. He doesn't want compelled worship. He wants faith-inspired worship. Because faith is what equals relationship. And the, the Pharisees, their, their blindness, their inability to see Jesus was rooted in pride. It was rooted in their own pride. They wanted God to do what they thought he should do in their way and in their time. And before we think that we would never treat Jesus like this, we do this all the time. We look at facts, we look at things that are set right before us, and we go, I don't know. We we do it with our sports allegiances, right? Like there's this debate going on. Is is Michael Jordan the best or is LeBron James the best? And we cite our statistics, and it doesn't matter the statistics. One side, you've already made up your mind, right? Right? It's Michael Jordan. Come on. <laughs> no, it's a, that may be a generational thing, right? 
So we do this all the time. In our skepticism, it doesn't matter what's presented before us, our minds are already made up. A a politician or a political party could do something that's actually good, but you are so set against them, you could never acknowledge that. Oh, yeah, sure, Uh, they're they're doing that now, but if they did this, then I think I would probably give them some credit. Anyone who threatens your own pride, your own position, or your own identity, in our human fallenness, we approach them with skepticism. And this is exactly what was happening with Jesus and these religious leaders. Because the reality is, if this Jesus thing is true, if he is actually God in the flesh, then I have to worship him. Like, I have to obey him. What he says is important. I have to listen to him and adjust my life accordingly. If Jesus is true, then that means I'm not in charge of my life. Jesus is. He's the king. So, of course, we're skeptical. Of course, we'll put barriers up to believe in him because it's a threat to our own pride. We are just like the Pharisees, aren't we? So this is one interaction Jesus has right after this feeding miracle. But continuing on, continuing on, we see spiritual blindness, not just in these religious leaders set against Jesus, but we see spiritual blindness in the very people that are closest to him. Look at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. (laughs) Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, what are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets Fulls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Now, what is going on here? The disciples are with Jesus in the boat, and they're worried and concerned about bread. And then when Jesus addresses them, he uses their topic of conversation to speak a spiritual truth to them. He's not concerned about the bread in that moment. He knows they'll be all right. (laughs) He says, listen, I want you to be aware of what could be in your lives, what you could be ingesting and consuming and not even aware of it, both that of the religious leaders and of the politicians of the day of Herod. You know, the most significant bread in the Jewish culture was unleavened bread, bread without yeast that would be taken during Passover. So Jesus uses that as an illustration to speak spiritual truth with them. And that's the warning. Don't let the pride of the Pharisees or the political idolatry of Herod, the king, mix with your faith. That's a whole message in itself, right? We'll chew on that one later. So Jesus speaks this to them, and instead of saying, oh, good point, Jesus, they go, is it about bread? Did he say that because he's talking about bread? (laughs) 
Jesus says, you're worried about bread? Do you still not see or understand? So Jesus is trying to speak spiritual truth for them. Realize they can't even talk about that, that yet. So what does he do? He goes, do you not remember what just happened yesterday? Do you not remember what I did a few days before that? And you're worried about bread? I'm worried about the condition of your soul. I'm worried about your relationship with me. So Mark's gospel account lines up all these events, culminating in the healing of the blind man. And it serves, this healing of the blind man that Lydia read serves as a real-world illustration of the events that we just walked through. People can see Jesus, but still not see Jesus. They can interact with the ways of Jesus, the people of Jesus, the things that Jesus does, and still not see Jesus. It's interesting, right? Jesus offers healing to the man, but at first his sight is only restored partially. Again, I think a real-world illustration of what was going on with all the people that were around Jesus at that moment, from the disciples to the Pharisees to the crowd. Partial sight, partial understanding of Jesus. The crowd heard Jesus speak for three days, but seemed to be unaware of the miracle of the food. Jesus' disciples had lost their perspective on the power and majesty of Jesus again and again and again. The religious leaders seemed to only want the truth on their terms, blinded by their own pride. All of these folks had partial sight. They could see Jesus, but their lack of faith, which manifested in all sorts of ways, kept them from full sight. You know, in the 90s, I remember there was, these, um, there was this kiosk in the mall where I grew up, and it was selling these pictures. Uh, I think they were called uh, stereograms, where it looked just kind of like a colorful picture, but when you stared at it long enough, you're supposed to see an image. Remember these? I hated these because <laughs> I could never see the picture. And I don't know if this will work because I think perspective, you have to be close enough and cross your eyes. And so I don't know if it works on a TV screen from far away. But it was this idea that you will see the, the real picture in the picture if you look at it in just the right way. Anybody see anything? No, I Literally, I hope it's nothing bad because I, I couldn't see it myself. So. <laughs> so let's get off of it. <laughs> so Jesus restores this man's sight partially, which connects with the events that had happened before. But then eventually the man gets full sight. And you know what? So do the disciples. Eventually, these men and others that would get to know Jesus would fully see who he is. But it would take the resurrection. It would take the, the ultimate sign of his divinity that he would overcome death. As a church that is meant to represent Jesus, to literally to re-present Jesus, this part of Jesus' story intersects with these guiding questions that we've been asking as we've been walking through the gospel account of Mark. The first question we've been asking is, who is Jesus? Instead of shaking our heads at the disciples, let's be humble and examine our own lives. 
our faith can be subject to the same lack of perspective and understanding that the disciples' faith we should be subjected to. We, we can literally worship God with all of our hearts right now and walk out and something can happen that can change our perspective. We could forget it, which is why this is important, to gather together to be reminded of it. Jesus says, do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear, and you don't you remember? Whew. He's saying this to the disciples. And I think today he might also say to us, are you that distracted? Are you that distracted that you can't think about something other than me when you gather for worship? That you are so compelled to pull out your phone and check it for no good reason? Are you that distracted that the movements in the culture are pulling you away from my heart for you? Are you that distracted? So Jesus wants us to have full spiritual sight. And we know him to be trustworthy, to be good. The other question we've been asking is, what does it mean to follow him? The Pharisees are insisting that Jesus provide a sign that will confirm their own goals and desires before they will commit themselves to belief. Many people want to know the same thing today. Is Jesus really a king or can he be more like, like just a cause? A cause that, that I, I, I like on my social media account and that I occasionally talk about on Christmas and Easter. You know, something we let others know about so that they think that we're good people. Is Jesus just a cause? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. That's what defines my Christianity. I think the same warning for us today. What does it mean to follow him? That we Christians, we need to be aware, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. What I mean by that is we need to be very cautious about both one extreme of religious fundamentalism, which says you need to do this, 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 and this for Jesus to love you, and the other one, which would grab political idolatry and make it central to the faith. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, to give you hope, right? We hold on to that verse as something, is, something good is going to happen for us tomorrow. And I mentioned this last week. That was given to a people that were oppressed, that were occupied, and that promise would be fulfilled 70 years later. In the meantime, what did God tell the people to do in the midst of their challenging culture that they lived in? To get married, to build houses, to start businesses, to grow crops, to bless the city that they lived in. Man, I cannot tell you, I was having a conversation with some pastors this last week that were telling me they've lost people in their church that have moved to a different state that better aligns with their political persuasion. And I thought, have you forgotten who you are? You are salt and light. You are a, 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 a representer of Jesus. You're an ambassador for Jesus. You're going to put your political comfort over your opportunity to make Jesus known. When the church is, is looking for political comfort more 
than uncomfortable opportunities to preach the gospel, then we have forgotten what it means to follow Jesus. Be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, of religious uh, zealots and of political idolatry. What it means to follow Jesus is to go where Jesus would go, uncomfortable places, places where they needed to hear the gospel. The last question we've been asking is, what are we inviting people into? To invite people to know Jesus, we need to be praying for their spiritual sight, not moving to Idaho. (laughs) But what is spiritual sight? Is spiritual sight simply a mystical experience? Is it it uh, an investigative process? If I have enough data, then I'll have spiritual sight. I think before we understand what spiritual sight is, we might need to ask the question, what does our faith consist of? What does our faith consist of? Now, if, you're, if your mind's going to Bible reading and prayer and church, like, that's a result of your faith. But what does your faith consist of? Our faith consists of two things. It consists of belief and trust. Belief and trust. And I've heard them define this way. Belief is involuntary. Uh, Belief is evidence, there's this evidence that carries us to a conclusion without much thought. The very first time you got in an airplane, you'd seen them take off, you'd seen them land, you'd talk to other people that did it. You you didn't have to think much about it. You believed, you get in a plane, it's going to fly, no big deal, right? Well, for most of you, some of you are freaked out of it. So belief is involuntary. The evidence carries us to a conclusion without much thought about it. But trust is a little bit different. Trust is an act of our will. The very first time when my son Jude, uh, he was standing on steps about this tall, and I said, jump to me, Jude. He had never done that before. But he knew me, and he trusted me that when he jumped, I would catch him. No data, no evidence, but relationship. So he did it. So trust is an act of our will. And this is what faith in Jesus looks like. It's an intertwining of our belief and our trust. We certainly have evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, but there are also times when all we will have in the moment is trust. I was praying for the life of my son in the hospital. All I could do is trust that Jesus loved him as much as I did. There's a story of this tightrope walker. I'll end with this. And he's going over a, a, a waterfall, and he has a pole, and the crowds are watching him. And they're not sure about this. Nobody's ever walked across this waterfall before. And so he walks across the waterfall, and he doesn't fall. And he throws down the pole, and he calls to the crowd, do you think I can do it without the pole? And people are like, mm, I don't know. And he does. And then he goes, do you think I can do it while pushing a wheelbarrow? And they're like, Yeah, we think you can. And so he does. He goes, do you think I can push a wheelbarrow with full of rocks? And they go, yeah, let's do it. So he does it. Then he goes, do you think I can do it with one of you in the wheelbarrow? (laughs) (laughs) Trust. And the crowd goes, yeah, we can. And he says, all right, you get in. In that moment where you have to put some action behind your trust. 
I think the two-stage healing of this blind man that we started with is a good reminder to us to not give up. You and I are called to represent Jesus, literally to represent him. And what we present, let's be honest, is an imperfect image, but it's still Jesus. We still are representing Jesus in the way that we live and act. So it's a two-stage process. We, people see him dimly through us, but ultimately we pray that we might represent what we represent might be done in a way that will lead people to fully seeing Jesus. And that's my prayer for all of us as his disciples. That you would see Jesus, that you would believe in him, and that you put your trust in him. He won't let you down. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.